Right, let me read you some words from a Jewish prophet crying out to God more than 2,600 years ago. See if you can relate to these words. Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I am surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. The law has become paralyzed. There is no justice in the courts. The wicked far outnumber the righteous so that justice has become perverted. We can, we can echo those words. We can imagine hearing them being spoken today. That's out of the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1. Sounds like somebody speaking in 2023. Spend a few hours watching the news on whatever platform you watch your news on, and you can quickly feel agitated and angry and sad. And now, put yourself in the first century in the church of Thessalonica, the ancient city of Thessalonica, and... The preaching of the gospel has just come to your city. The, the news of a savior, Jesus Christ, has been proclaimed and you have heard this gospel preach and you have turned in faith to Jesus and you are trusting in him as your savior. However, since you did, life has become very, very hard. You and your fellow believers are mocked for your faith in Jesus Christ. You've been ostracized by people who you thought were friends, in some cases, even family members. You have this sweet experience of community and unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, but there have been threats and even persecution from the rest of the world. Each day is difficult. Hatred and evil seem to be lined up against you. There's even a supernatural component to all this, and that it seems as if Satan himself is warring against you. Temptations are constant. You battle despair. You have questions about the very presence of God. Lately, there's even been confusing talk about the end of the world. Some letter has circulated claiming to be from the Apostle Paul that instead of bringing hope and truth has prompted fear that perhaps we're caught up in the middle of the day of God's wrath. Perhaps he somehow abandoned us and so your hopes of deliverance are fading. So into that environment that the Apostle Paul wrote what you looked through last week that Pastor Stewart led you through in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 last week, where Paul confronts this counterfeit letter that has spread about, purporting to speak of the day of the Lord already coming, and he responds to it by teaching them again. He says that this is something that I've, I've, I've said to you, but let me remind you, let me reinforce these truths to you about what is coming and about the, the man of lawlessness and the coming rebellion. And so if you're those, those readers in Thessalonica in the first century, your question at this point may well be, now what? That, that's helpful to understand that, but we're, we're still living under persecution. We're still suffering. We're still an ostracized group of people. The day of apostasy and the man of lawlessness are yet to come. We're still enduring wicked times. We know that Jesus Christ is coming and with him the, the day of the Lord when he delivers his people but also brings wrath upon the earth. So, so now what? What should we be focused on today? What should we be doing now? Those questions are as important for you and I today as they were in first century Thessalonica. We're not facing persecution like our ancient brethren, at least not yet, 
but there's certainly growing hostility toward the truth of Jesus Christ and to those who hold fast to it. Evil is running rampant. Hatred is abounding. Human life is devalued. Biblical morality is mocked. So like the Thessalonians, we're living in a very dark world, waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for Jesus to deliver his people and bring judgment upon the world. So what about now? What, what should we be focused on today? Should you be looking for signs of the end? Should we be trying to grab hold of the reins of government to stop evil? Should you be stocking up your survival pantry? There may be nothing inherently wrong about any of those. We, we should be waiting for the glorious appearing of our Savior. We should be standing up for what is righteous and opposing that which is evil. And we should exercise practical wisdom in light of the world's foolishness and evil. But here at the end of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and on in through chapter 3, Paul really answers the now what question. For people living in a, a dark and wicked world and awaiting the return of the Savior, and he'll do so in two parts. The first part, by a positive exhortation. This is what you are to do, and that's what we'll look at this morning. And then the last part, at the end of chapter 3, is a warning of what not to do. And we'll look at that next week. But for this week, this is all on the heels of, uh, of what Paul has just spelled out concerning the coming apostasy and the man of lawlessness. Here is what should occupy our time and energy. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 down through chapter 3, verse 5 is what we're going to look at this morning. And God's word urges us toward three things as we live in this dark world, as we face hostility from unbelievers and await Christ's return. Those three are studying all that God has already done for us and is doing. Secondly, stand firm with confident hope. And third, serve God. So there's two parts to this section we're going to look at this morning. i read the first half to begin with, and this is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 through 17. But, there's a key word we'll come back to, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Word but, right there at the beginning of verse 13. There, there's the, the contrast now. So the preceding verses have been talking about a particular group of people. If you go back to verse 10, let's just see the contrast. He's focused on those, it says in verse 10, who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You should remember this from last week, as Pastor Stewart mentioned, that from our perspective here on earth, our under-the-sun perspective, there's that tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, a tension that's somehow, sometimes difficult for us to, to, to fully grasp, and yet is perfectly clear in the mind and will of God and, and taught clearly throughout the scriptures. Man is charged with loving and obeying God. Responding to God's truth 
and believing in him, but he refuses to do so. And instead, as it describes, he takes pleasure in his own sin. He loves his own unrighteousness and he rebels against God. And so God then sends this strong delusion that condemns the unbeliever in his lies. That is the state of much of the world. But, verse 13 begins, but we are obligated to thank God for you, brothers. We've talked about them, those who are lawless and those who love unrighteousness, but you, brothers. There's this rebellious world happily walking in the darkness of its unbelief, but, but then there's you, brothers. And that's the contrast he wants to set. And the contrast continues even to the point that Verse 11, he had said, for those who are rebelling against him, those who are not believing his truth, he sends upon them this strong delusion upon those who hate him. But then what he does in verse 13, he says, but, but you brothers, look what God does for you. Consider all that God has done, that you are where you are and what he continues to do. And verse 13 launches into this glorious list of all that God does in the lives of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ. And it is just a beautiful litany of his goodness. You are beloved by the Lord. You are chosen by God. You have been set apart, sanctified by his spirit. You have been called to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. You are being given comfort and hope and strength. By God's grace. Uh, let me read on into chapter 3, just because this list goes on, it, there, there's still more. Chapter 3, verse 1, finally, brothers, he says, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. This, this catalog of all that God has done and is doing in the lives of believers continues. God directed his word toward you. God is able to deliver you from evil men. God is faithful and he causes you to stand. God can direct your heart to his love, to perceive his love and to see the steadfastness of, of Jesus Christ. What, what Paul's doing here, and this is really important for us to see because sometimes we, we sort of read Paul's prayers and we only see them as, well, that's, that's what Paul prayed for that church. But he's, he's very much teaching through his praying. He's using his explanation of how he is praying and giving thanks to God for them to model for them. In effect, he's saying, I, these things that I am praying for, I want you to know. I want you to meditate on these things. I, I want to bring these things to your mind. He doesn't simply say, I'm praying for you. He lists all of the things that he's giving thanks for because he wants them to think on these things and to meditate on them and to study them and to hold fast to them. We saw last week where Paul crushes the, the, the whole counterfeit movement, the counterfeit letter that has come and the, the lies that were disturbing their peace. It's important to expose spiritual lies. It's important to show what is wrong and what is attacking scripture and to show why it's wrong and to condemn it. But for the believer in Jesus Christ, there's also the truth 
of what replaces that, those lies, the truth of what God has done. It, this is the Ephesians model of put off and put on. Put off this counterfeit stuff, this stuff that you've been told that's, that, that, that's disturbing your peace, and put on the truth of who God is and what he has done. Meditate on what he's done for you. There are many people right now in our world whose, whose hearts are darkened in spiritual delusion. They have rejected the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, but, as for you, he says, you are loved you have been chosen. You've been set apart by God, and he is giving you comfort and hope and strength. Paul is, in effect, saying, brothers and sisters, I, I know this is a hard season. I know this is filled with pain, and, and, and the human propensity is you are desperate to know when this will stop, when, when the end will come. And, and, and Paul's able to speak from, from real-life experience He's able to say, I, I, I understand. Been there and still doing that, still suffering for, for the sake of Jesus Christ. But his response to them is, brothers and sisters, think on what Christ has done. Study these truths. Consider the, the depth of his love for you. Consider how he chose you as his own, not based on anything that you've done. You haven't earned it. He didn't do it based on anything he knew you would do. He acted out of his grace and mercy in choosing you to be his own and rescuing you and saving you. And then, then he, he sent his gospel to your city. He actually directed through the, the Macedonian vision. He, he sent the gospel to come across to your very city and he brought his good news to you and then his spirit worked in you and sanctified you in such a way that you would respond in faith, God did all of this, and he is continuing to comfort you and encourage you, and he has called you to experience the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That statement in verse 14 says, you will obtain through God's call the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that, friends. When you think about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, what what comes to mind? What, what do you imagine in that moment? Ma Matthew 17 gives us as close a glimpse as we get. Jesus goes up on a mountain with Peter and James and John, and it says there in Matthew 17 too, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. In this moment, it is as if any of the hindrance that would keep them from seeing Jesus in his fullness as the, as the Son of God, as God the Son, now is, is drawn back and they are able to get a, just a glimpse of the magnificent glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while they're there, verse 5 says, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. They are in the very presence of God the Father. And they are hearing him speak. And they are seeing the, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, Paul wrote, is what God has called us to obtain. For you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, that is what he has called us to gift us with, to give to us the eternal glory of God. Listen, Paul, Paul is able to relate to these brethren who, who no doubt one of the things they're wrestling with is I follow Christ and I start losing stuff. My, my, my 
things that I've treasured, my relationships, my stuff, the things that seem so important now is going away. And Paul's able to counter that by saying, there is pleasure and there is treasure in Christ that is so far greater than anything you're losing right now. And that's where you need to fix yourself. You may be suffering and the world is a dark place, but there is no comparing the eternal glory of Christ with your experience right now. And so that's why he's calling you to, to trust him because he has called you to the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. And, and I think that's Paul's message in his praying is think on these things. Is join me in giving thanks to God for these things. Just meditate on them. Cling to them more tightly what God has done because in that you will find hope and comfort. Your, your circumstances on earth, there's nothing in here that gives any indication that things are going to change right away, that the persecution is going to stop or they're suddenly going to be welcomed back into the community. Your circumstances may actually get worse, but the truths that God has given you, they are certain. And this is what he's done, and this is what he's continuing to do. In fact, if you look at that language in 2.16, 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. It's not just comfort, it's eternal comfort. It's the contrast in that your suffering and the persecution that you are enduring, and all the pain that you are experiencing, all of that has a terminal point. It will end, but the comfort, the encouragement of God, that is eternal, brothers and sisters. He will remain alongside his people, ministering encouragement and giving us hope. Think about the last time that you were overwhelmed with discouragement, with anxiety, the last time temptation felt like it was sinking its claws into you, what would, would your mind go? What did you dwell on? What did you, what did you focus on? What did you begin to think about? What consumed your thoughts? Were you thinking about just how discouraged and lonely and sad you felt? Were you contemplating how often I've fallen to this temptation before and, and just preparing for failure again? I think the exhortation here via the, the prayer that Paul is giving is consider what God has done already. Think on these truths that God has loved you, loved you, he loves you, he has chosen you, and he is urging you to give thanks for these things, for his work in your life, his setting you apart for faith, his comfort, his, his hope, his strength. There, there should be no end to our meditation on the things to be thankful for, even in the midst of, of everything else seeming to go wrong. One other brief point we, we ought to see in, in verse 13, and this is just extra bonus theological point in verse 13 that I think is really great to see. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, Belief in the truth. When he says Lord, beloved by the Lord, he makes it clear in verse 14, he's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we see in this passage is loved by the Son, chosen by the Father, set apart by the Spirit to respond in truth. It is, it is not a verse that says, and here is the Trinity, 
but it clearly is the Trinity. It is, it is God in his kindness showing God, one God in three persons, all actively engaged in our salvation. That, that Jesus loves, God chooses, the Spirit does the work of setting us apart is a marvelous picture of the Trinity at work in saving his people. All right, look again at verse 15. I want to move on to the, the second point. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by the spoken word or by our letter. So as you live in these last days, first study, meditate on, think on what God has done, what God continues to do on your behalf. And second, as you meditate on these things, stand firm in confident hope. Stand firm. When he says in verse 15, stand firm and hold to the traditions, these are the first two direct exhortations in all of 2 Thessalonians. These are the, he's, he's instructed in, in a number of ways already how believers are to live and what they are to do. But these are the first two imperatives, and, and, and it is his, his first sort of call to action specifically to the Thessalonian believers. And it starts with, so then, or you could say, consequently. In other words, think on all that God has done, and as you think about what God has done, Therefore, consequently, being reminded of who God is and how he has loved you and chosen you, therefore, stand firm. Be, be rooted in truth. Don't be tossed around by these, uh, as Paul would say in Ephesians, winds of doctrine or man's cunning, like, like the counterfeit letter that caused so much sorrow. Since you know who God is and what he's already done for you, stand firm and you will do that, in fact, he says, by holding fast to the truths that you've been taught. You will stand firm as you hold fast to that which has been given to you from the Lord Jesus and through the apostles, to that which we would look at as the words of Scripture, as, as the Word of God. And we will stand fast as we hold to that. And so Paul's urging the Thessalonian believers, be grounded in what you believe and, and, and stand there and despite the chaos and the evil of, of the world. We, we need to get this, brothers and sisters. This is not just for the Thessalonians. Paul had, remember the context here, Paul had just reminded them of, of, of sort of what lies ahead, looking ahead to the end times, assuring them that you're not in the day of the Lord. Jesus will return. He will return for you. The day of the Lord is still to come. Um, God is still in control. And his very first exhortation to them after giving them that particular teaching is not, therefore, prepare for the worst. Therefore, look for signs of Jesus' return. Therefore, fight back against your persecutors. The, the, the first exhortation is, stand firm as a follower of Jesus Christ and hold fast to his truth. Again, nothing wrong with practical steps to prepare yourself to protect oneself for whatever may come. But even in that, we need to be acting out of a faith that, that believes these truths, that our God is in control, that our God has already done all of this magnificent work. The God who loves me, who chose me, who set me apart, who called me, who strengthens me, he is in control. And so I can rest in him. I can stand firm no matter what happens, even in a world that is fully upside down in terms of its thinking about morality and its attitudes towards evil, I, by God's grace, can stand in an unwavering way as a follower of Jesus Christ 
and, and hold fast to his truth because I believe that truth defines who I am. This, this thought from verse 15 really carries into chapter 3, but what he does in chapter 3 is he also couples it with the reminder that his exhortation to stand firm and hold fast is not separated from the grace of God, that I'm not telling you to do something that you're not also empowered to do or that God won't already do at work in you. So it's not your willpower or strength that accomplishes this. If you look at chapter 3, verse 3, he says, the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. One of the great themes that's in this passage from 2.13 down to 3.5 is stability. It is rock solid firmness. Again, remember, this is all started by this counterfeit letter that has shaken them and has caused them to be unstable, to, to be not sure of what they believe or what they're living in. And so there's been all this counterfeit teaching that's tossed them around. And Paul says, this is what's true. This is what your identity is in Christ. This is what God has done. Your eternal standing is based on a God who loves you, who chose you, who set you apart, who called you and who is strengthening you. Therefore, what we keep seeing in this passage, 2.15, stand firm. 2.17, may the Lord establish you in good works. 3.3, the Lord will establish you. 3.5, may the Lord direct you to the steadfastness of Christ. Over and over again, we see stability that rests in hope. You see verse 16 all of this, verse 16, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. That the steadfastness is based on the comfort and the good hope that God gives. That, that phrase, good hope, that's the only time that it, it shows up in scripture, good hope. Um, so it's, it's an unusual phrase, but it's not unusual for Paul to use it because we've found that in, in Greek documents uh, that, that were corresponding to this same era in time, that was not an unusual phrase. And it was often used as a reference to the afterlife. It was kind of um, a, sort of good luck. It was, you know, good hope for life after death. Good, may, may you have a good hope for what comes after you pass. And, and so it's entirely fitting that Paul appropriates it here when he's just spoken of the believer's eternal comfort and the coming experience of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ to say, we truly have good hope. God has given us a certain hope. We're not saying it just sort of, unsure, speculating, wishing you the best, God has given you this good hope so that you know that the life to come is a gift of his grace and it's even better than the one we experience now. So therefore, his whole point here, stand firm with a confident hope. Having stability, standing firm in Jesus Christ should be a distinctive that marks us off as believers in Jesus Christ. They will know we are Christians by our love, as we love the brethren. There's lots of ways in which they can see Christ, but one of them should be our stability in Christ in a world that is full of chaos 
and evil, our steadfastness to believe what God's word says and live it out should be part of our testimony to outsiders. People should be able to see that we are not frightened by the times. We are not swayed by whatever the latest philosophy is. We're not confused by man's ideas about life after death. We're not moved away from our faith by some threat of persecution. We're not in a panic about new laws or new governments or, or radical forms of evil. No matter what changes, our faith remains secure in a holy creator God who saved us from our sin. And so therefore we should remain in our steadfastness fixed on his righteousness, fixed on doing that which is pleasing to him, that which demonstrates his, his holiness. We stand for the truth even when it's under attack from many sides. The Lord will establish you. So hold fast to the truth and stand firm in it. So as we live in this dark world, facing the hostility of unbelievers, awaiting Christ's return, we should be studying what God has done for us, standing firm with a confident hope. And finally, number three, we should be serving God. We, we've seen Paul pray for the believers to be established in every good work and word there at the end of verse 17. And that prayer as I said, is based on the preceding eternal comfort and good hope that comes from God. What he's doing there is saying that God by his spirit ministers within your soul comfort and hope. God by his spirit brings to life his truth and he brings encouragement and, and, and a certainty about eternal life. Now what he says in verse 17 is may that inner sense of confidence in God and rest in him, may what that peace that we experience now produce fruit that's seen in our works and our words. Now may our life in an outward way reflect our comfort and our hope. And this prayer for believers is not isolated to first century Thessalonians. This is to all of us as we live in these last days that we are to be serving God. This will make a, even a little bit more sense when we get to next week's passage, which is the very last part of chapter 3, when you see the warning against what believers are, are to stop doing, to telling, tell them to stop doing this. The ESV heading on that last section is warning against idleness, and that really does sum it up well. Because the, the, if you put yourself in the, in the shoes of the Thessalonians, and you've been given this teaching, and you know that, Suffering is, is, is still inevitable, still likely to continue. The Lord is coming. Uh, I don't know when, but he is coming. It's easy to imagine that while facing persecution, while waiting for Jesus to return, the temptation is to withdraw, to, to disengage, to, to not be involved about the works and words of Jesus Christ, but rather to just sort of pull back and hunker down. That's why the, the warning against idleness we'll see is not just a, he doesn't just shift gears and suddenly talk about their work ethic. He's talking about something that's developed out of their un misunderstanding of the teaching. And, and they've become idle because they just pulled back. For you and I, the, the, the temptation is similar. And, and, and I think for you and I, it's, we've got a culture where work and school and the public square are all becoming increasingly hostile to, to biblical truth and biblical morality, and it is tempting to be quiet in our words and our works. It's tempting 
to just want to blend in, to not deal with the conflict, to not stand out as a Christian, as somebody who follows after Jesus Christ and believes, do you, do you really believe all of this stuff in the Bible? You know, have you ever had that kind of question? Do you really believe this stuff is true? And the temptation is to just want to blend in. If I don't stand out, if I'm not living it out too loudly, this won't bother me. And that's precisely the approach that Paul is urging against when he says, may the Lord establish you in every good work and word. May the Lord give you strength from the comfort and hope that he gives you so that you would live godly lives no matter how great the threat there is because of what you believe. No matter how eager you are for Jesus to return and rescue you, your words and deeds now still need to reflect Christ-likeness in all that you do. And he emphasizes the point again in chapter 3. In verse 2, Paul's praying that, that they would be delivered from wicked and evil men. And in verse 3, he adds that God would guard you against the evil one. That's, that's Paul's prayer. I, I, I think it's... It, worth us just pausing there and remembering this is not a, a promise of immunity from persecution. We know that believers were persecuted then and that they have been persecuted throughout the history of the church right up through today, that there are still believers who are suffering severely for their faith in Jesus Christ. So this is not a, a, a sort of no harm clause here. It is Paul's prayer for them. And it speaks to us about praying, that it's good to pray for God to protect his people. It's good to pray for God to guard them against evil, but it's really, the, the emphasis here is that it's coupled with the fact that God is faithful. The one who's, who has pledged himself to guard you is faithful, such that the worst that could happen is they could kill your body and your soul would be immediately in the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ forevermore. And they can't touch that. And so the Lord is faithful. And so when he prays that, that God would guard them, it may or may not be in the form of physically sparing them from harm, but it is certainly the eternal salvation of their souls that God has pledged himself to guard them. And Jesus said it in Matthew 10, 38, don't fear the one who can only kill the body and not the soul. As believers in Jesus Christ, no matter what happens, we have the eternal comfort and good hope of God, and that should sustain us. Not to shelter ourselves and pull back from the world and wait for Jesus to return. It, it, consider Paul. He, Paul, you go through Acts and you get the whole, uh, in Philippians, he gives the whole recitation of, of all of the ways that he has suffered, imprisonments and beatings and being stoned and left for dead and, and all that he has experienced. And yet his chief prayer request here at the beginning of chapter three is, finally, brothers, pray for us. What would he ask for? That the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not all have faith. He is in part asking uh, that you would pray for safety, but what's his whole point in that? So that the gospel would continue to move forward. Pray that anything that might hinder the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ, that, that God would move that aside so that we can continue to be ambassadors for his and proclaim the gospel as we did with you where it was honored because God chose to save this, this glorious group of people in, in, in Thessalonica and bring them to himself. 
Pray that the gospel would go forth from us unhindered by evil opponents so that it continues to save sinners just as it saved you. Brothers and sisters, this, this whole section that we've studied is, is really one big prayer. Typical Pauline fashion, it'll kind of go on a little bit and it'll wander around a little bit, but it's prayer and thanksgiving, and he's, he's teaching us through it. But I, I think the fact that Paul prays like this should remind us, going back to what we said at the beginning, what Stuart said to you last week, it reminds us on the, on the one hand that God is sovereign. Paul knew that God is sovereign. Paul knew that it was God that would have to establish his people. It was God who, who saved them. God would have to keep them. God would have to guard them. This was, this was in God's hands because God is sovereign. But he also prays this because he understands the very real human component to all of this, and that is that when we are tested, our faith can be fragile at times. Discouragement can set into our hearts. Anxiety can seem to grip us. One writer put it this way, we tire of the struggle of faith as an athlete tires in a contest or a soldier grows weary in battle. So that's why Paul first says we have to thank God for all this because God's the one who deserves all the glory. God has done this and so we are obligated to give thanks for him and we gladly give thanks for him. But then he prays and he prays that God in his grace would give endurance to his people that despite the fact that the world will continue to hate Christ and his gospel and his church until the day Jesus returns, that believers would see that our calling is not to hunker down and, and just watch for signs and wait for Jesus to come back, but instead that we would be steadfast, that we would be serving with works and words given to us by God himself and serving faithfully and abounding in the work of the Lord and that we would be praying that God in his grace would use us to speed his word forward. And in all of that, we're to do that, and I'll finish just with verse five, because that's where this section ends. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. You hear a recurring theme? So it took you to Jeremiah 31.3 at the beginning and the love of God. We've been singing about it. Paul said, the Lord loves you. And here at the end, what does he say? He says, I want you to be steadfast. I want you to be pressing on the work of God. May God direct your heart to know how much he loves you, to know how great his love for you is, that you would be motivated, driven, pushed forward by the fact that the creator God loves you. And he says, the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. When we are when we are tempted to grow weary, when, when persevering feels really hard, when endurance is just not there, who does he put before us as the model for us to see? He says, look to the steadfastness of Jesus Christ. Your Savior already endured suffering to the point of death on the cross in your place, and you now are joined to him. He is in you. You are in him. And by his spirit, he is empowering you to continue to walk like Christ. And he is now giving to you and I the incredible privilege to follow in his steps. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have come to meditate on your truths. And your truths drive us to give praise and thanksgiving to you. God, we thank you for 
rescuing sinners. We thank you that the work of salvation as described here in this simple prayer of Paul's is one that is reflective of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the election of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit to remind us that it is not because we earned salvation. It is not because we figured something out that others didn't. It is because of your grace and your mercy that you set us apart to be your own. And so we come before you not boasting, but just filled with gratitude. Thankful that our hope and our comfort is eternal. Thankful that our our calling is to obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is, it is beyond our own comprehension that we would somehow participate in any way in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet you say it here again, that that is just a, a part of our inheritance in Christ. And so thank you. Thank you for the, the, the grace and the strength and the endurance that gives to us, cause us to, to stand fast. Lord, you know the brothers and sisters in this room, what they are enduring, the the challenges they are facing, maybe even hostility that some are enduring in the workplace or from friends or or perhaps even from family. Lord, I pray that whatever the outcome of that here on earth, that you would cause us, cause my brothers and sisters here to stand fast on your truth, to be a, a light that shines, that demonstrates stability in Christ not because we're, we're especially strong or have willpower, but because of all that Jesus has done. We pray that people would see in us a stability that rests in Christ and trusts him for all that will come our way that is good. Lord, I pray for anyone listening here this morning, listening online, who is not finding hope in these words, who is not feeling that they have comfort, whose sentiment is much like the first century Greeks and and seeing good hope as just sort of the potential for something after this life, but not being certain of what that is. Lord, I I pray today that your spirit would do the work that, that was accomplished in Thessalonica. It's been accomplished in the hearts of so many in here that we can give testimony to that your spirit would open their eyes to see that they are lost and that the the greatest obstacle gulf that they face is the one between them and you, and that is on account of our sin, that we are all sinners who have broken your law, and that Jesus Christ, in giving his life on the cross and rising from the grave, conquered sin and death, paid the price for sin, so that those who turn to him and trust in him could have forgiveness and eternal life. Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of steadfastness. Equip us now to, in word and work, bring honor and glory to your name. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.